In those first months in America, Bella worked as a cleanup man and on the docks in Long Beach, California, learning English by watching Sesame Street and by discussing with his wife after a day's work what his foreman had been yelling at him. And I said, I haven't learned a word, son of a bitch. She said, oh, I, you know, what, what does it mean? And I said, I don't know, but let, let's get the, the dictionary out. So I took the dictionary and looked it up and son, son, find a son, son of somebody. That's fine. Then uh, bitch, bitch is, you know, it's a female dog. I said, all right, female dog. So son of the female dog, there's got to be a puppy. Bela was very, very into learning English. I mean, he gets some books, some uh, cassettes, you know, and uh, we listen to the radio and we watch TV. And Bela spoke uh, much better English than Marta. Marta's English was awful. Bela's wasn't uh, much better, but was better than Marta's. This is Episode 2, American Hustle. As Bella has always told it, after defecting from Romania, he and Marta stayed in a $7 a night motel in a seedy part of Los Angeles. He worked at a restaurant cleaning up at night and as a dockhand unloading cargo for cash. My immediate goal was to get back in my profession uh, rather than cleaning more uh, restaurants and doing uh, dock work in the harbor. But Geza Pozar, their friend and choreographer who defected with them, remembers those months in California much differently. Instead of a seedy motel, he says they stayed first in a suite at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel on Rodeo Drive, and then in a guest house on the sprawling grounds of a friend's fancy L.A. area home. Geza knows because he stayed there too. We had swimming pool, we had the horses, we had tennis court, we were jogging, we were going around. We didn't work. The friend they stayed with confirmed Geza's account. He doesn't want to go on the record and dispute Bella publicly. But he said Bella Caroli was not working at the docks or washing dishes to pay for a $7 a night motel room. He was living rather comfortably off the generosity of a friend. But Bella understood the power of the public persona he was building and the appeal of a rags-to-riches story in the United States, a country of immigrants. The story begins in the foothills of Transylvania in a small coal mining village isolated on the side of a mountain. Bella Caroli was a thinker and a doer, but most importantly, a man with a vision, a vision of fashioning little girls into champions. Mike Jackie, who had closely observed the Romanian coaches on that Nadia 81 tour, was now the president of the U.S. Gymnastics Federation. He watched as the Carolis tried to adjust to their new reality. They thought they were going to come here and coach a kid. You know, like, oh, I'm going to come and I want to, I'm going to coach an Olympian. And they realized that they had to coach lots and lots and lots of kids in order to pay the bills. They're walking into this world of private gyms scattered across a huge country with a handful at the top that were fiercely competing for both athletes and for coaching stature. My reporting partner, Bonnie, is a longtime Olympics writer. And this farm system, so to speak was overseen by the U.S. Gymnastics Federation, which is a nonprofit national governing body that's very dysfunctional and at that point really struggling financially. There was no government involvement in sport here in the United States, and so there was no one to appoint Bella to anything and no one who was going to bring him elite athletes. He had to do it on his own. 
Luckily, the Carolis had a pretty decent calling card. They were Nadia's coaches. That alone prompted a Houston gym owner to hire them. Bella and Marta recruited the 1981 junior national champion, Diane Durham, to be their first elite gymnast. Now they were officially on their way. They went on the road to scout other promising athletes, like eight-year-old Shelly Stack from Philadelphia. I remember doing my back handspring for the very first time in that little tryout. Scared the living daylights out of me, but I did it. There was one spot left on his first original team of 18, and I made the team. That was the beginning of my uh, coaching career here in uh, the States. Uh, That was the time when I got finally back in my profession. The Carolis set down roots in Houston, Texas, where they were reunited with their daughter, Andrea. And less than two years after defecting, Bella and Marta were able to buy the gym where they were working and hire their own coaches. I felt like this would be a great opportunity for me to learn from the best. Steve Nuno was a 25-year-old coach based in Boston when Bella offered him a job. You know, I, I remember waking up the second night I was at their house to this shh, 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 shh. And I look at, my, at the clock and it's like 3.30 in the morning. I'm like, what is that? Shh, shh, shh. And I look out the door and Bella is sweeping his driveway. And uh, I realized right off the bat the guy was just a workaholic. Just a workaholic. He just loved being free to do whatever he wanted to do. I don't think he was able to do a lot of the things where he came from. I don't think he probably was allowed to sweep his driveway at 3.30 in the morning. He was doing it just because he could. You just think about doing the freedom, the life difference, the social life, and probably the most important, the professional opportunities what this country offers. You can do what you freely and deeply you feel you want to do. He did love being free. You know, you could just tell he liked driving. He liked doing everything about, he liked cleaning the bathrooms at the gym. As soon as we got to the gym, he was in the bathrooms, cleaning the bathrooms, vacuuming, and he never sat down. He never, never sat down a single time. And then when practice started, he was on it hands-on, getting, making sure he was right in there, spotting everybody, doing all this. And I was like, worn out watching him. Is it harder to coach the athletes in a free environment? Well, you know, that was one of the things that I heard so much about it before uh, I came here and immediately upon my arrival, oh gosh, I heard so many bad news. How the American kids are spoiled how they don't want to work, how they want, you know, to do everything in the world and that they are not consistent in one direction. That's not true. That's not a true. That's a lie. Literally every day we did the exact same thing. They did morning workouts. Bella would show up in the morning. I mean, early morning workouts, 6.30, you know, had to be on your toes, ready to go. We would always start with conditioning, go to vault, go to bars. You know, there was a lot of repetitions of things. I mean, how many cartwheels can you do in a warm-up that, you know, can we get to the big stuff? Let the kids make sure they have the energy to do those others. Just, you know, once they have it, they have it. You've got five, two and a half twist vaults. I think she's got it, you know, don't need to do any more. You only have to do one at the meet. Bella Caroli's program involved a demanding physical regimen, relentless pressure, and an intensely competitive atmosphere. There was like always a pyramid. Everyone had a place. There was the winner, maybe the queen bee, and everybody else was kind of like a little pawn to help push 
to make that one person successful because not everybody can win. There's only one winner. The one thing that Bella was known for is a master motivator. I mean, he could make your shoes dance without you in them. But he was also a master demotivator. He could also tear out your soul and destroy you as a, as a person so that you don't want to dance. And I saw both sides. One afternoon, a promising young gymnast was struggling with a tumbling path. And he just didn't understand it, just was you know, blaming her for not being able to do it. And he picks up this piece of foam out of the pit, and he goes, this piece of foam has more life in it than you. And two days later, she was gone. She just didn't even want to do it anymore. And I went, okay, that's got to stop. And I had to explain to them from a business standpoint, that was a $1,000 a month decision. To keep his gym open, Bella needed paying customers, which was something Steve appreciated more than Bella did. Taught him a little bit about business. Uh, Taught him a little bit about the American system. He said, I only want to train world champions. That's what he told me. And I said, well, then there's only going to be six kids in this gym. These kids did it for fun. They weren't selected and put into a program. Steve ended up parting ways with the Carolis after less than a year. I left because one day they came and said they couldn't afford to pay me. No matter what growing pains they'd had in their first couple of years, Bella and Marta were determined to repeat their success here in America, to prove Nadia was not a fluke. Mary Lou Retton was 14 years old when Bella Caroli met her in Reno, Nevada in December 1982. Just four feet, nine inches tall, she was a sturdy, powerful athlete with clear Olympic potential. I was just a wildcat. You know, I would make a 9.9 on the vault, but I'd fall five times off of the beam. Very inconsistent. And I just needed better coaching. Mary Lou had a coach who she'd been training with in her hometown of Fairmont, West Virginia, since she was seven years old. He'd helped her get to the elite level of gymnastics. But at that meet in Reno, when Bella first introduced himself to the star in the making, her coach wasn't there. A coach would not normally go up to an athlete and say, hey, you know, you should move in and train with me because I'll do a better job. Totally unethical in the eyes of the gymnastics community. He came up to me, I mean, smack dab in the middle of it, and he, and he tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around, you know, of course, I looked up at him, he's such a big man. And I was in complete awe. I mean, this was the man who had coached Nadia, you know, my role model, my inspiration. And, and of course, I knew who he was. You know, he was the king of gymnastics. He was talking to me, you know, he's completely blown away. And he said to me in, in, in his deep Romanian accent, he said to Mary Lou, you come to me, and I make you Olympic champion. That's all it took. In the space of a single weekend, Mary Lou and her parents decided she would relocate to Houston and train with the Carolis. Nobody, no, ever, ever did you know, that to approach me like Mary Lou did, you know. Geza Pozar was used to seeing gymnasts in Romania terrified by Bella. He'd never seen a gymnast treat him like a buddy. You know, she was just uh, acting like they had a... Uh, Teammates, you know, not like a real coach and, and uh, gymnast. Mary Lou's personality was 
uh, honest, open, uh, wobbly, bubbly, and uh, and always uh, ready for a joke, uh, ready for a smile. Uh, we learned some bad words in Hungarian, and very Bela, you know, making fun of him, how he speaks, his accent, you know. He, he, Bela is a very shrewd guy. He's figuring out very quickly, you know, personalities and what to approach. He didn't try to impose on her a system that may just push her away. What did he say? What did he say? Boof, boof, come on, boof, boof. Boof, 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 boof. Hoppa! Woo. He just gives a lot of different sound effects. Just a regular, normal person would come in and think he was crazy. But it wasn't all jokes. Mary Lou was working hard. Bella needed to take me to the next level. And that was that fire level, that it doesn't matter, there's no mountain, you can't climb level. Mary Lou had an Olympic goal. And the Carolis had an Olympic goal. There's just a quality about Bella when he would look at you in the, in the eyes. You know, you're at the eighth hour of workout. You are so sore. You're tired. You're mentally drained. You're thinking about going home and eating dinner and getting in bed. And Bella wants to play Olympics. Now's the time. Let's do it. You know, you got to be perfect. He just would pull that every last inch of you of energy and of motivation and of anything that you had left. And as the 1984 Summer Games got closer, it was clear their hard work was paying off, especially on the balance beam. And my beam has gotten so much better, and that's due to Marta Caroli. She really doesn't get into the scene as much, but she has helped me so much on beam. It's incredible. All of a sudden, she was a rock. Not only stayed on the beam, but looked comfortable up there. Sixteen-year-old Mary Lou Retton is barely four feet, ten inches tall, but she is a powerhouse on the vault. This year in competition, no one has beaten her, and by everyone's estimation, she's favored to win a gold in Los Angeles, maybe two goals. Los Angeles was the first U.S. city to host a Summer Olympic Games in 52 years. That put the heat on American athletes to shine at home. Bella and Marta felt the pressure in a very personal way. The Soviet Union and most of the Eastern Bloc countries were boycotting, making the Carolis' former Romanian athletes the gold medal favorites. Romania's star, Katerina Zabo, who had trained with the Carolis in Deva. Katerina Zabo was one of the best gymnasts, besides Nadia, what I had under uh, my direct coaching. The Carolis needed Mary Lou, their new star, to outshine their former star. No American woman had ever won an individual medal in gymnastics at the Olympics. I believe if I can provide the first Olympic gold medal for this country, that's going to be a great satisfaction and, and just an expression of my gratefulness to this society and, and this, this country. Bella wasn't a part of the official U.S. coaching staff, but he wrangled a credential from an equipment sponsor so he could be on the sideline during the competition. We have a microphone on Bele Karogi. Maybe he'll be commenting on this. Let's do legs. Be ready, okay? As expected, Romania took the team gold. But the U.S. won silver, the country's first Olympic team medal since 1948. That's a silver medal for the United States, almost for sure. A gold medal performance for all of them. What effort and determination. Mary Lou qualified easily for the individual all-around 
and the spotlight shifted to the matchup between her and Zabo. Oh, the good competition between Mary Lou Retton and Ekaterina Zabo of Romania. And the battle's on. Heading into the final rotation of the individual all-around, Mary Lou trailed Zabo by 15 hundredths of a point. I knew that I needed a 9.95 to tie Zabo for the gold or 10 to win. Mary Lou had two shots at her vault. Her first vault was a full-twisting layout Sukahara, a skill she'd honed in the Karoli's gym. And I hope she has her wings on today for this vault. Mary Lou saluted the judges and started sprinting down the runway. She was running toward the vaulting horse. Amazing takeoff, an incredible impulse on the horse. And her little body was flying to the air. It was like perfect. On the landing, her feet drove into the mat like a spike. In one motion, she lifted herself upright and threw her arms and head back in triumph. With a perfect routine, perfect walk, and sticking that landing. Yes! She has done the best ball of her life. She, she knows what she's done now. Full twisting Sukahara. Bella climbed over the barrier, and Mary Lou jumped into his arms. Her celebration became their celebration, forever fused. Ah. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> that bear hug instantly endeared him to the public. Bela Karoni, hear him? And the crowd is on their feet. What a moment for American gymnastics. That's a 10. That's a 10. There it is. She did it. 10, the gold medal. The gold medal goes to Mary Lou Redmond. Oh, what a party they'll have in Fairmont, West what Virginia. What a nice tonight. shot. Good guy. What does it feel like to be the world champion, the best in the world in gymnastics? Oh my God, I can't express the feeling. The long, hard years of work have paid off and it's every bit of it was worth it. Ladies and gentlemen, Mary Lou Retton, right here. Everybody wanted to be like Mary Lou. Look at that cute little freckled, little dimpled face. As a young coach and gym owner, Rita Brown celebrated Mary Lou's rise to fame, along with the rest of the country. She was spectacular. She was our little Wheaties girl. Watch out, big boy. Television, newspaper, radio, endorsements. That was the beginning. Before the 1984 Olympics, Mike Jackie was president of a federation struggling to survive. After the 84 Olympics, he watched his sport explode. The one-two celebrity punch of Mary Lou and Bella changed everything for gymnastics in America. There was a cultural shift in sport nationwide. It became winning, money, power. Bella and Mara were just part of it. They took advantage of it. They took advantage of it like other people didn't. After the Olympic game, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of young children wanted to become another Mary Lou. Hundreds and hundreds of young children, they've been just floating toward the, the gymnasiums. The gymnasiums been filled with young children. Everybody was dreaming about that one day, maybe I'm going to be the next Mary Lou. Bella cashed in on his newfound fame as an American champion maker. Gallery Furniture is proud to be a sponsor of Bella Caroli's elite gymnastics team. Thanks, Matt. Well, thanks to all of you for showing us that hard work is still the spirit of America. Sponsorships sprung up. Enrollment skyrocketed. Bela Caroli and his wife, Marta, have seen enrollments double at their gym on the north side of Houston. 
Make that almost triple, from 600 gymnasts to 1,600 in the months following Mary Lou's gold. The Carolis had to expand their gym and hire additional coaches. There were traffic jams as fans tried to get a glimpse of Mary Lou at the place where Olympic champions were made. These are the eight-year-olds at Baylor's gym. These little dynamos of raw energy that he shapes into strong, graceful athletes. He calls them his little hopes. Bella, you've got thousands of young girls right now that want to be gymnasts. What can you say to them? How much has Mary Lou Retton's style changed the style of gymnastics and will it hold in the future? After that many Russians, Romanians, finally we got the new American Idol and I am so glad. I'm so glad for them. I'm so glad for this beautiful sport. From now we're going to have thousands and thousands of new Rettons <laughs> coming up on the gymnasiums and certainly our next Olympic Games. The media dubbed Bella and Marta's new crop of elite gymnasts, Caroli Girls. Phoebe Mills and Shelly Stack were part of this exclusive club. Every part of the package was put together in an idea of first class. You know, your makeup was done, you had lipstick on, you had your hair pinned back perfectly. Every little detail was taken care of that the leotard fit perfectly, the warm-up fit. You always wore white socks, you had white shoes. Now you recognize that uniform there, the white with the purple and the blue, that's the uniform of Caroli's gymnastics. And it may look as though all the gymnasts here are wearing that uniform, and so many of them are. You walked in and you were so prepared and confident that it was kind of intimidating for other people because you're like, ah, oh, the Caroli's are here. Yep, that's our chance, we're done. Marta was responsible for the very particular presentation of the Caroli girls, which she more or less modeled after herself. She always wore the same thing in the beginning. Always. Little white keds, white socks, black nylon parachute pants, and a solid t-shirt. She was always perfectly put together. Bella was the face of the operation. Marta was behind the scenes running the business. Marta was the, the businesswoman. Marta was the leader. She worked the front desk, she did the billing, she sold leotards and she coached Beam, an event where Phoebe Mills excelled. They definitely had their roles, and they de and they also, I would say, played off of each other a little bit, too. Like, if Bella was in a really bad mood, Marta would tend to be in a good mood. Bella and Marta were building their stable of Caroli girls, and everyone was curious to see which of their young gymnasts would emerge as the country's next best hope. I was probably about 4'10". Freckles, brace face, short little red, strawberry blonde, Dorothy Hamill haircut. Christy, you were absolutely unbelievable. And you look like you enjoyed it. I did. I just tell myself to go normal like I do in practice and that I can do it. Well, you sure did, and you made everybody up here gleam. The Carolis saw tremendous potential in young Christy Phillips. And so did her mom. My mother was very overweight very loud, very obnoxious, and very proud of her daughter. Christie's mother, Terry Sue, spent her days at the Carolis gym. She sewed mat covers. She drove her daughter around in a van custom-painted with a picture of Christie on the side. Christie was her job. Bella Caroli, to this day, loves my mother because my mother did everything he asked her to do. Oh, she did it, Terry Sue, she did it. Very good, very good. And my mom... Yeah, I know she can when she wants to. But I just remember getting home and always like, so-and-so got more turns than you on the bar tonight. You got to get out of that chop box. You got to do this. You got to do that. And 
the intensity just never stopped. Everything about her life was scripted. Bella and Marta Caroli were masters at what they did, and they knew the details that worked. And different details worked for different kids. The Carolis shaped Christie's image, right down to her Dorothy Hamill haircut. And part of my persona was my hair, and it bounced with me in my floor routine, and I was a very, very showy performer. I don't ever think I was the most outstanding tumbler or the most outstanding bar worker, never. But my ability to hit when it counted and my ability to perform was captivating. Phillips again with that classic, powerful Mary Lou Retton style. Incredible, that's a round off onto the board, a back handspring onto the horse and a laid out, tucked, full twisting backflip off the horse. Very difficult vault that she handled it perfectly. In 1986, Christie won her first big international competition, the American Cup. She then won every U.S. competition she entered that year. And the 14-year-old landed on the September cover of Sports Illustrated. This perfect picture with the crystal blue eyeshadow, the feathered hair, the big smile of braces. The caption on the cover of Sports Illustrated read the new Mary Lou. When I got this quote-unquote title as the new Mary Lou, it was like, wow, they think I can do this. I, I want to win the Olympics. The expectation was I was going to win the gold in 88. She's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. You know, she's a superstar. She, she was winning everything. And then we had an issue that took place in 87 with the Pan Am Games. The Pan Am Games are held once every four years in the year before the Olympics. And they're an early indicator of who has a shot at making the U.S. team. If you said to me, what are the chances of Christy Phillips being on the 88 Olympic team? I go, guaranteed, 100%. Not, not a chance she won't make the team. Christy and Bella both had their sights set on the 1988 Summer Olympics. Four years earlier, he'd given the U.S. its first gold medal. This time around, he expected the U.S. Gymnastics Federation to reward him with the position of head coach. Bella was not a guy that understood or had any respect for rules. Bella was, if you won, then you ruled. So he felt like, that should be me. I should be the head coach. But the Federation had a different plan. They named a neutral head coach, someone who didn't coach any elite gymnasts. Bella did not take the news well. Bella calls me up and goes, this is ridiculous. I don't like this. I don't like this at all. Mike Jackie was the president of the U.S. Gymnastics Federation, and he refused to give in to Bella's demands. So Bella decided to protest. He boycotted the Pan Am Games, leaving Christy Phillips to compete without her famous coaches. A reminder that our coach Bella Caroli and Marta Caroli are not here for this competition. He didn't go to prove a point that his kids could not perform without him. Without her motivator-in-chief, Christy faltered. I couldn't run down the runway in warm-ups. I couldn't get my steps right on vault because I didn't have that little voice in my ear going, come on, buddy, you can do it. You got this. You can do it. Come on. Okay. Christy Phillips had fallen off the balance beam twice this past week. You have to wonder how much Bella not being here has affected her performance. She did a vault, landed on her knees. And from that point on, Christy started going downhill. Bella continued to protest, and Christy continued to falter. He skipped the world championships, and Christy finished 45th overall. Her Olympic hopes were slipping away. 
Part of the reason I left Carolis in the beginning of the season in 1988 was just that. I was depressed. I didn't want to go to the gym. Six months before the Olympic trials, Christy left Houston for Southern California. She attended public high school and made friends. On the weekends, they rode bikes on the beach. The move out to California may not have been the best for my gymnastics. It was the best for my soul, and it was the best thing for my mind and my heart as a human being. And then my body started developing like a normal human being does at 16 years old. However, not very good for the sport. But Christie's desire to fulfill that prophecy of being the new Mary Lou still tugged at her. If I'm going to do this Olympics and I'm going to go for it, I'm not going to be able to do it this way. In May of 1988, just two months before the Olympic trials, Christie returned to Houston to finish what she had started with the Carolis. They put her on a strict diet. About 500 calories a day. We're talking boiled eggs, tuna fish from a can and a salad, and slice of toast here and there. Like, the intention was to help me get this under control. And again, we're talking 112 versus 92. 20 pounds on a little frame. But when she came back, uh, that, was, <laughs> that was shocking. Shocking to me. Overweight, out of shape, dragging herself around the floor. Bella and Christy had worked hard to get her back in competition shape. But Bella wasn't counting on her as he once had. At one point, it was thought that Bella would give the United States its top gymnast in the name of Christy Phillips. Well, if she continues her comeback, he has given the United States its top gymnast, but her name is Phoebe Mills. He showed up at the Olympic trials with a slate of talented gymnasts. Watching quietly, wondering just how many of his gymnasts will make this Olympic team is Bella Caroli. He parades around the arena. He is really a media darling. Right now, it looks as though Bella Caroli will send three gymnasts on the main team and have both the backup alternates to the U.S. Olympic team. And that, I think, is a credit to Bella in the way he teaches these athletes to concentrate and to be so focused and, once again, to practice so many repetitions and we are waiting for the score for Shelly Stack, 15 years old, 74 pounds. In all, five Caroli girls made the cut. Shelly Stack, Phoebe Mills, and Brandy Johnson all made the team. Rhonda Fain was named as an alternate. Remember, sixth is the cutoff. Seventh place is an alternate in Seoul. Eighth place is an alternate that remains back in the United States. Christy finished in eighth place. It was good enough to earn a spot as the second alternate, but it meant she wouldn't get to go to Seoul with the team. I don't even remember saying goodbye to them. I don't even remember them saying goodbye to me. That was crazy hard. It had been a challenging year for Christy without Bella on the sideline. In what had felt to her like the blink of an eye, she'd gone from Phenom and Bella's favorite to the girl who didn't make it. But for Bella, that year-long protest had paid off. He had what he wanted, the title of U.S. head coach. Four years earlier, he hadn't even been able to get a coaching credential. This time, he was heading to the Olympics as the undeniable centerpiece of women's gymnastics in the U.S. Good evening, and welcome to Seoul and NBC's coverage of the Games of the 24th Olympiad.
1988 Summer Games were the first time since 1976 that none of the top teams boycotted. The U.S. would have to go up against gymnastics' greatest powerhouse, the Soviet Union. Let's start with three basic facts. One, the Soviet Union, since they first entered Olympic competition in 1952, their women have never, never lost the team competition. The U.S., until 84, had won only one women's gymnastic medal. That was way back in the 40s, a bronze. Even the Carolis were realistic enough to know that Team USA was not on the same level as the Eastern Bloc. But the U.S. team exceeded expectations. They were in bronze medal position after the first day of competition, until a technical deduction from an East German judge dropped them into fourth place and pushed the East German team into the bronze medal spot. And they knew what they were doing because it was the difference in a bronze and fourth place. I believe this should not uh, happen in the Olympic Games, just a shamely, dirty maneuver and uh, shame for those ones who done it. So that, that was pretty disappointing for our whole team. Even Phoebe Mills' bronze medal on the balance beam couldn't make up for the letdown of having a team medal within reach. And then have it stripped away from us for this technical deduction. You know, it spent a very long amount of time and hours training, and we were still training so hard. For the first generation of post-Mary Lou Caroli girls, this was the end of the line. None of them had become the new Mary Lou. And not many gymnasts got a second chance at the Olympics. But it was different for the Carolis. They could set their sights on the future. And they were just getting started here in America. And that I take this obligation. On May 1st, 1989, they were sworn in as U.S. citizens. It's a great feeling for me. I know I'm going to step on that floor from now as an American, not an immigrant who are residing in the States, but an American. And nothing was a better representation of Bella's American dream than his ranch. When he heads for his ranch on a rural highway north of Houston, in his four-wheel drive with Merle Haggard on the dashboard cassette deck and a day's collection of bugs on the windshield, well, you'd swear you were riding with a born Texan. When Bella Caroli defected to the West, he defected to the West. In 1985, the Carolis had purchased a 50-acre tract of land within the Sam Houston National Forest, a two-hour drive north of Houston. Now, on the property he bought with his earnings as a private coach in the U.S., he plays his newly acquired role as a part-time redneck to the hilt, including the name he gave his prize bull. That sucker is Gorbachev. <laughs> Look at that down face. It was what Bella wanted after emerging from the claustrophobic lifestyle of communist Romania. Bella wanted to be John Wayne. He wanted a ranch and he wanted to have animals, so he created a place that he, he loved. My all-time hero, uh, John Wayne, that is the man of the law. And of course, you know, my dream was maybe one of these days I can see those places where John Wayne, the great sheriff, uh, the great uh, Western uh, hero, was um, actually acting and um, living. When Phoebe Mills and Shelley Stack attended one of Bella's earliest weekend training camps there, most of the property was undeveloped. And we got down there and it was pretty rudimentary, like he had a house. And he had a couple of cabins that were built, 
And then that was sort of it. This is a free environment, it's a natural environment where they can feel without the stress and the disturbance of the big cities, of the everyday life, where there's no any disturbance, no phone calls, no radio, no television, no anything, but a good, straight, sturdy focus over the most important thing, the good preparation. So we got up in the morning and said, all right, we're going to go in that field and jog. And we said, wait a second, there's cows in that field and bulls and what? We started jogging and he's on his four-wheeler behind us, just sort of like showing us the path. We were allowed to ride four-wheelers to go back and forth to our cabins. Who gives teenagers a four-wheeler and say, here, make it to the gym tomorrow morning? And I hurt my back because you're doing like V-ups on a deck, V-ups where you're on your back and you come up and touch your toes. And I just remember, this is really painful. This is not soft. It's too hard. After that first 50-acre parcel, the Carolis kept buying up more and more adjacent land until they had hundreds of acres and eventually more than 2,000. The ranch was always a work in progress. He built a house for us so that we could we didn't have to stay in the cabins anymore that didn't have a bathroom in it because we used to have to go in the middle of the night and walk to the outhouse when the cabins were first built. He also had to make his rustic paradise more comfortable for his wife. One of the stipulations was that he built her a perfect fancy bathroom. Then she would move out there. The ranch was Bella's pride and joy. During those early camps, he was like the reckless dad who let the girls shoot rifles and ride horses, while Marta was their caretaker. She was our mom, so she cooked for us. And she would always come out with strawberries and whipped cream. That was, that was her way, I think, of showing, here's your, you can have your little sugar, that was your dessert strawberries and whipped cream. And after the Seoul Olympics, Bella began bringing his elite-level athletes to the ranch more frequently. He converted an old barn into a gym. He and Marta started running summer camps for young gymnasts. The ranch became the cornerstone of their gymnastics empire. These days, walking with Bela Caroli on his ranch, you can almost feel him putting down roots in this piece of his American dream. But for Caroli, the coach, and his girls, it's paradise with a purpose. It was an unconventional place to train young athletes in a sport where injuries are common. So isolated, so far from the nearest hospital. And the rule from day one, no parents allowed inside the gym. But Bella Caroli was unconventional. And most importantly, he was seen as the coach who knew what it took to make champions. Bella Caroli has his critics, he has his success, and he is living his dream out on the range. Not bad for a guy who used to sweep floors for a living. You get the feeling that if Caroli had met John Wayne, the two would have had a lot to talk about. Bella is indeed the Romanian cowboy. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. 
And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. Oh, I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. <laughs> I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word, Broomgate. Coming up on the next episode of Heavy Metals. Uh, look at Delendi, hold him right. If Bella Caroli was not doing this, he'd be a conductor of an orchestra. Everything was about Bella. I said, the show is the athletes. I said, you're creating a monster. Bella Caroli was the king of elite gymnastics. Some people see him as a very ruthless coach who's too tough on the kids. He was untouchable. There was probably some emotional abuse. Many believe the Caroli set that standard, but they just perfected it. Heavy Metals was reported by me, Alyssa Roenick, and Bonnie Ford. Producers Andrew Mambo and Meredith Hodnott. Senior producer Julia Lowry Henderson. Executive producers Libby Geist and Aaron Leiden. Mix engineering and sound design by Mitra Kaboli. Production management and licensing Luis Argianis, Kath Sankey, and Jennifer Thorpe. Production assistants Riley Bloom, Gus Navarro, Samantha Dowd, and Trevor Gill. Original music by Ian Koss. Executive producers for ESPN, Connor Shell, Rob King, and Allison Overholt. This podcast was developed by Jenna Anthony and Adam Newhouse, with help from Jody Avergan. Additional production support from Amy Van Dusen and Eve Wolf. Archival producer, Juliana Branham. John Mastro Berardino provided fact-checking. Terry Langford did legal research. ESPN Audio... Tom Ricks, Megan Judge, Pete Giannassini, and Ryan Graner. Special thanks to Jenna Janovey and Elaine Tang, Jolene Van Vute, and the production teams at ESPN LA and ESPN New York. This season of 30 for 30 podcasts was produced in association with ESPNW.